Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. What does pine resin has to do with regeneration? And how do you build true wealth for indigenous peoples through building assets you actually don't own? The first 10 minutes you hear a bit of background noise of the tree nursery where this conversation was recorded. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode. Today with Sean Paul, the CEO of Ejido Verde, a sustainable pine raisin company positioned to become a lead supplier of the 10 billion US dollar global pine chemical industry. They increase the constrained Mexican pine resin supply with an adaptive reforestation model to restore degraded lands and with strategically guaranteed buyers. Welcome, Jean-Paul. Greetings. I always like to start with a personal question. How did you end up disrupting or working in the disruption, let's say, of the pine resin supply industry? Because it's quite a, a quite a specific niche of the niche. And I'm, I'm very interested. How did you end up reforestation, etc.? where... What was the road that led you to become part of this organization? Wonderful question. I uh, pursued a career from, you know, my beginning of my 20s in international development and finance. I started my first company in 1992, Ecologic Development Fund, where really it's been my life trajectory of how do we move money to grow sustainable livelihoods of people in places important for their biodiversity. And that can look like, what does it look like to support communities in a protected area in the tropics to build ways to earn a living that reinforce the conservation of nature in their protected area? So, And I've done this, I think, in my career. I think you may know, and if we look at the planet, 80% of the world's biodiversity is uh, on lands used and occupied by indigenous peoples. So over my career, I guess approaching 30 years, it's been where I've been working in a lot, number of ways of how you would deploy money, grants, loans, equity with indigenous communities in a way that improved nature. So that's I've done a number of companies. And uh, one of the I formed an impact venture fund a few years back. And it was with that fund that I was approached by a Mexican family for three generations. They have been buying pine resin in Michoacan, Mexico from forest communities. And they turn that pine resin into ingredients that they sell to the world, into diverse industries. And uh, the group, the Pinosa group, uh, this family business, was challenged with um, 
how to increase and assure a reliable supply of pine resin in the context that where this resin comes from in the natural forest, the forest is being lost to deforestation and land use change. So what they really, I ultimately accepted an irresistible, my friendly advice to them as a prospective investor turned into uh, based in Boston, you know, living in Boston for 25 years. And they just made an irresistible offer for me to join them in building Ejido Verde, you know, to realize its goals, tapping on my expertise that they didn't have. How do you mobilize impact investment, do it in a way that's appropriate and sensitive to the unique customs of indigenous peoples? And how do we do that in a way that gets them the pine resin supply they want, improve the environment, improve social conditions, and create an offering to the right investors that allow us to uh, realize our goals as a company at Hito Verde. So I uh, joined the company about five years ago in assuming the role of CEO. And moved to Mexico. And moved to Mexico, where um, you're reaching me in this call today from Morelia, Michoacan, Mexico. And just for people to understand, what is pine resin? Just a very dummy, dummy talk. What what should we imagine? What is it used for? How does it come out of a tree? How do you even harvest that? And, and what does it look like? Okay. So um, I'm sure, you know, we've, uh, my listeners have at some point been in a forest with pine trees and there's sap sometimes on the bark. It's sticky. And um, the way the pine resin is extracted, it's many ways, but the primary way in Mexico and many parts of the world is that a cut is made in the bark and it goes slightly into the body of the tree. And there are, in effect, there are veins running through pine trees where it's part of the circulatory system of the tree is the pine resin. It's part of its defense. It's part of how trees don't die or live. You know, the trees we plant will live for 80 to 100 years. So the tapper, you have these tools and you cut open the bark and then the sap begins to drip, right? Because you're opening a vein and effectively it starts to drip. And they put a cup there so that the drippings fall into the cup. It's very slow. So it's kind of like um, the tapper might make that scrape and then they'll come back to that tree in eight days. And the cup, which might be 16 ounces, would fill up and they empty that cup. And because we're in a temperate climate, that cut, when they make the cut, it crystallizes. And so that means the resin stops dripping and it crystallizes. And so to keep it from dripping, they got to every eight days scrape the cut to fill up another cup. So that gives a little sense of where the resin comes from. It's similar. You can think about maple syrup and how it's extracted from the trees or rubber, you know, is tapped also from trees. And they're all similar in that we're scraping the bark to get into the, you know, the wood. And in that wood, you collect these resins. In terms of your question of how pine resin is used, one of the first documented uses of pine resin is in the Bible. And uh, in Genesis, it actually, I mean, it was one line where, you know, when Noah was told uh, by God to build the ark, he was told to build it with pine resin. So pine resin is also known as pitch, and it's been used as a sealant for wood boats for millennia, including, you know, according to the Bible, right, they were using pitch for sealant on wood boats, you know, five, 6,000 years ago. In my region where I, my adopted home of Michoacan, the uh, local cult peoples of uh, Porepecha, an indigenous cultural group 
They've been using pine resin for also for millennia for sealant on wood boats and for medicinal purposes. However, if we fast forward to contemporary times and how is pine resin used today commercially, the volume of pine resin traded today in the world is equivalent to the volume of cacao traded in the world. Wow. Pretty significant volume. And yet most of us had no idea. And I would also say that most of us had no idea that everybody, everywhere, every day uses products made with pine resin. To give an example, it's used for adhesives. It's sticky, tactifier. And some of those adhesives are shoe glue. So I always ask people, your shoe glue, was it made with the green chemistry, climate-solving pine chemicals, or was it made with hydrocarbons sourced from petroleum? And most glue today is sourced from petroleum. Yet we, the pine chemical industry, offers substitutes for adhesives uh, to petroleum. So that would be one. And other uses were in food products, carbonate beverages, chewing gum. We have organic pine resin uses uh, preservative, organic. Um, we have um, kosher ingredients, kosher grade inks, adhesives, pharmaceuticals, electronics are all different industries with applications using pine resin. And where does the, like where traditionally or what's the, on, on this massive market, I mean, cacao comes from a few specific places. Is that the same with pine resin? Is it any pine tree can be a source or is it specific regions on specific altitudes, etc. in terms of climate? What are the best places for uh, whatever the Saudi Arabia's of pine resin, basically? Yeah, well, any pine tree produces resin. And in terms of resin used for commercial purposes, certain species have a better chemical profile than others. But, you know, pretty much of all the resin producing trees used commercially in the world, half of those trees are naturally occurring in Mexico. In terms of where is resin produced for global markets, Mexico is the number five producer. The top producer is China, followed by Brazil, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Mexico. So those are the countries that are the leader producers. What's exciting for me For my industry, in terms of its global implications, five years ago, 80% of global pine resin exports came from China. And today, China has become a net importer of resin products. Wow. And that means a blue ocean opportunity for, you know, emerging markets, relative small producers like Mexico. We're maybe a 2% of global production, yet we're the number five global producer. So now that there's a new opening, 80% of the market's wide open, we're seeing some new entrants get into growing their presence with pine resin. Basically, you can produce pine resin anywhere, you can grow pine trees. And those places where we're seeing some expansion of planting trees, and, and the expansion is coming from, let me clarify, part of the right reason China is becoming an importer are really two th factors. One, they overexploited their natural forests for the pine resin, and so they're deforested and degraded. And the other factor is um, wages have increased in China that make it um, less attractive economically for the tapper. So with this phenomenon where the shift is coming, where the future of our industry is, we think about pulp and paper industry. It used to rely pulp and paper. I mean, it relied entirely on natural forests. Today, the industry went through a complete transition where all fiber for pulp and paper now comes from planted forests. 
It's a, a change that happened, say, within these past 20 years. And in my view, the pine chemical industry at the beginning of that transition. Almost going from hunting to farming. That's, there you go. We sadly can no longer rely on natural forests for reliable pine resin because deforestation and those places that are planting forests. Brazil is the leader where Argentina is getting in. Paraguay is interested. We have uh, South Africa is a, a new player. We have people approaching us from Mozambique and Kenya considering getting into this market. Vietnam is growing rapidly. And those countries that relied on their natural forests and didn't take care of them, they're really declining in production. That means China and Indonesia in particular. We have a tree nursery here where we're doing a lot of uh, testing and experimentation. So you're hearing some of our um, tree nursery operations in the background. It's absolutely fascinating. And then what is the role or how would you describe the company you're the CEO of? So what is that part of reforestation, but also the planting side, working with indigenous peoples? Like what would you, in a few sentences, I mean, I, I did the introduction, obviously, but there's a lot more there to unpack. How do you normally start when you, I don't know, start a talk about the company? What do you normally start with once you got out of the way that people understand that pine resin is a huge industry and ripe for disruption? I say... At Ajito Verde, we are chock full of innovation. Our company exists because the dominant business models before us were failing to meet this market demand. And um, depending on my audience, I think, well, yeah, we are primarily a position to be a pine resin supplier. That's our primary role, right? create a primary business and economic role. But I'd say our purpose is we're in the business of building transformational wealth for forest communities, industry, and investors. And we do that with an innovative model to restore degraded lands, usually indigenous and communally owned. And we have developed a finance and technology package to restore these degraded lands, establishing commercial agroforestry plantations that local people often call pine resin orchards. And we're building a new model for forestry plantations that incorporate culture, incorporate wealth building, and not just uh, producing a commodity. And we're doing this at a scale that has never been done before. I will definitely put the website below in the show notes, but just to walk as visually as, visually as possible, because this is uh, obviously audio, through, let's say, a pine orchard. What should we imagine people that haven't visited? How does it look like? What do you see around you? What is different? What are things you might not expect, etc.? Sure. So I work in different regions, eco-regions and climates, but our biggest reason are the mountains. It's called the Meseta Poropecha. We're in the mountains. It's populated by indigenous communities. A hundred years ago, the entire region was covered by a native forest of a mixed pine oak forest in a temperate climate. I'm talking in a region where the culture is strong. The Poropecha people are proud that they were never conquered. Right? They were never conquered by the Aztecs. They had decades-long war with the Aztecs. The Aztecs never won. And when the Spanish came, they couldn't, after 90 years of fighting, they couldn't win either. So I think part of that natural landscape, if you can imagine large expanse, I don't know, I'd say a thousand miles of mountains and forests and rivers, uh, abundant, chock full of wildlife, jaguars and deer and falcons, and we're one of the most biodiverse regions in Mexico, and Mexico is one of the biodiverse countries in the world. So that was 100 years ago. And since then, we've seen the region go through a massive systematic deforestation 
in 100 years. I think we've lost 70% of our forests, and that has been due to illegal logging, legal logging. And then one land use change that we often see is there was subsistence farming. Their soils were depleted. People introduced cattle on those areas, and then their soils get compacted, and they don't even produce good pasture, so they even abandon them for cattle. Those are often degraded, depleted soils are often the lands that communities and landowners offer to introduce our tree, or introduce our program. So in terms of the landscape, you know, the roads are good. Everybody has schools. Everybody has healthcare centers. And when we're looking at a particular parcel, we're surrounded. Uh, the other thing that happened on the landscapes, if they didn't clear cut the land, often what came before us was a selective logging where they removed all the pine trees and they left the oak trees. And it depends this degraded forest, unproductive lands that isn't even good. You know, there's not being used for anything. We have probably a million hectares like that, a million hectares in, in our region. Wow. Uh, so we're trying to take those lands. And so when we see an eligible parcel, I mean, you're trying to get a sense of that landscape. Maybe there's corn on it today. Maybe it's just brush with a few tree oak trees on it. And it'll be often you have remnant forest nearby. So we have these forest fragments that you can often see in the distance. There's probably a river or stream not too far away. So those are often the landscapes that we're working on, beautiful views in the mountains. Uh, and we also would imagine that part of the area we're planting is the destination of the monarch butterfly. So I think you may know that the monarch butterfly travels for seven generations from Michoacan, Mexico. They migrate up to the United States and Canada, and they return back to Michoacan. And the incredible thing is they return to this very concentrated area. It's one of these wonders of nature. How do these butterflies know to fly for seven generations and come back to the exact same forest stands in Michoacan? We're planting in, I'd say, zones of influence around those uh, protected habitat with our hope that we're offering local people an economic alternative to grow new forests, harvesting pine resin, and uh, give a little economic incentive to reduce the illegal logging that continues to threaten the habitat of the monarch butterfly. And so then you come in and you start working, you start planting. How does it look like compared to the original forest, which we might even not, not remember anymore, but what's, is it a plantation, an orchard? What should we imagine when you come in and start planting? What we see visually, I think, reflects the social constructs of where we're working. In Mexico, 51% of land is owned collectively by communities under, uh, they're called ejidos. The ejido system was created about 100 years ago in Mexico as basically the result of a revolution and a land tenure reform where land was given to, for collective ownership to communities. And that aligns in a similar way with indigenous communities that have also collective ownership of the land. So in those communities, as a collective, where they have a general assembly, they elect their leaders every three years, and there's a process over the generations adapted to the traditional uses and customs of the people where individual families are given usufruct rights to use the land. So we work with families that have maybe occupied and used the same parcel of land for seven generations, yet technically the owner is the community and the family is the occupant or user of that land. So when we enter a community, it needs to be with the consent of the entire community and with the interest and consent of individual family farms. And so when we're going in, sometimes they find us, say, we want to plant trees, come see, take a look. 
or we or we're always looking for new places to plant and we approach them. And when I say them, maybe we approach a farmer, maybe we approach a community leader, but there's ultimately a process where when we're looking at parcels, we're doing it together with community elected representation, together with the farmer. And when we agree that a parcel is eligible for our program, we want to see land that's technically apt, right? It has, it's not too steep, has the right soils. Those would be the technical considerations. But we also want to make sure the land is what I call conflict-free. We want to make sure that somebody presenting us land isn't claimed by somebody else, the neighbor. So we need to have some legal documents that really help us ascertain that there's clear legal backing for the land tenure of that land. And once we get all that clear, then we come up with, we design our agroforestry designs are really curated to a specific site. So we talk as a program about regenerative agriculture, regenerative finance. One of the challenges Hito Verde seeks to address is every place is unique. Every community is unique. Every parcel of land is distinct. And therefore, we cannot just do the exact same thing to every parcel of land where we work. And just to give a sense of our scale, we now have 4,500 hectares under management. That's about the size of 90% of Manhattan, where the average parcel size is four hectares. And we're managing, you know, about a thousand parcels today with uh, about, you know, I think 750 family farms. So when we go in with that family and or that community, so we're going to have to do, first, you need to clear the land for the trees and get rid of the weeds. If possible, we use mechanization to break up the compact soils. We just need to put those tractors in once to break up the soil so we have a good loose soil for the trees to take root. We then plant native local trees adapted to the site. We work with about seven species of pine trees. All are endemic and local or local. And then uh, we basically, based on elevation and whatnot, you know, um, we choose what species are appropriate for that parcel. We introduced the initial planting. We adapted a model that's proven success in Brazil around planting, where we do 1,100 trees planted per hectare. That's about a distance of three meters between those trees. And then um, over time, I'd say by year seven of that plantation, we reduce the density of those trees. 1,100 trees gets reduced down to 800. So on the initial field, we're imagining we're having a cleared field. There are going to be some oak trees often around on the perimeter of where we're working. Why were they not cut? What was the reason that the pine trees were cut and the oak trees were left standing? No commercial value. Okay. But very interesting from a biodiversity perspective. And you leave them as well, I'm imagining. Oh, yeah, yeah sure, sure. No, they're great. I mean, the, the pine from, a, so the oak from a biodiversity point, they're great for enriching soils, certainly great for biodiversity. But because these forests have been mined, we don't have a natural forest anymore. You know, these aren't even forest remnants. These are trees, right, that are left over. And sometimes the density is so, there's so many trees on a hectare of those oak that nothing will grow from, you know, productive point of view. So if we look at the point of view of nature, those oak trees left, if you leave that land untouched for 60 to 80 years, a natural forest will be restored, will come back. However, that is just a mythic, false assumption that these landscapes will be left untouched for 60, 80 years. So in fact, they are maintained in their degraded state over the decades. They need an intervention. 
in our belief. We know, you know, think about, I mean, there's an analogy we've been uh, hearing about the forest fires in California because of, you know, long-term lack of management, the lack of fire, the lack of thinning, the lack of cutting trees has made for, uh, you know, an ecological disaster when those forests were cut and then not properly restored. So yes, uh, to have a healthy landscape with robust biodiversity, it's my belief that many of those oak trees need to be cut down and we need to be reintroducing the restoration projects. We can work with those. Sadly, those restoration projects are underfinanced and rely pretty much on philanthropic and donor money. And we did experiment in the early days at Hito Verde with restoration models, giving trees away for people just to plant anywhere. We just found those trees didn't grow very well. So we then moved toward focusing on a plantation model. We need to see full sun on the parcels we choose to plant on. There are, depending on the time of year, we got a lot of, um, I mean, what I love, like you might call them weeds here, but they're beautiful. These are pollinating plants, these, uh, you know, with flowers. So depending on the time of year, we can be surrounded by flowers of different, you know, wildflowers of different colors. But as we, that might be a starting point, and there are different times of the year where those flowers pop up around our trees. But the areas we plant look different over time, right? When we first put that seedling in there, we do need to completely, we have an approach where we are, you know, removing, we use agrochemicals, including how to, uh, following Forest Stewardship Council guidelines of how do we manage uh, weeds on the landscape that we need to do that with um, agrochemical interventions for the, only for the first two years. So what it might look like is the parcel will have these seedlings that are very, we, we have great seedlings. I mean, some of the you know, world-class 25 centimeters and high, they're very robust. You see those on, on a landscape and you, you know, you're going to see sometimes we leave some of the ground cover Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're experimenting with raised beds, you know, how to raise them a little bit, like little rows across a parcel. And the average parcel size, you know, again, is four hectares. That's maybe 10 acres. And we have many parcels that are only one hectare in size. So that might be what you see. And the other thing that you see on these landscapes, once the trees take root, we see lots of little holes in the ground. The holes come from these rodents that live under the soils called a tusa. And these tusas love eating the young roots of crops and trees. So one of our biggest pests are this tusa. And in your landscape where we just tilled and planted the trees, you're going to see these holes, pocket holes of the tusas that are sniffing around for new food sources. And what do you do about them? Or how do you keep them available? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Well, this is an example of how we take combined science traditional ecological knowledge, and we're looking at permaculture practices of how to manage this. We have tried a lot of things, a lot of things. So we do a combination. I say there are three things we're doing. One, these are animals that build tunnels under the ground. You know, they actually often never see the light of day and they just thrive living underground. So we need to break the tunnels. So if you break the tunnels around the parcel and within the parcel, that you can kind of break up that network of... um, 
tunnels under the ground. So that's one. We'll have to, you know, use a, use a tractor or do it manually. You got to break, break up the tunnels. That's one. Two, we're now experimenting with introducing um, other sources of food, other plants that can grow between the trees that would attract the Tusa and attract them away from the pine and toward another food source. We're experimenting with that. You know, jury's still out. And there is a technique that we use that's more of a commercial approach where there's a, basically we put, um, oh, we try the approach of, a, I say a permaculture approach, filling the tunnels with slurry. You take sand and water and you try and fill them. That's very expensive, can work, uh, but so that hasn't been very practical for us. And the other one we're using is a more commercial application where there's a, a, a gas that we can put in. It's a pellet, aluminum. It's an aluminum gas that's poisonous to the um, Tucson. And mostly what well, these Tusas are very smart, so they don't really die, but it scares them away. And that's um, these you know, pellets that we put in to create a gas within the tunnel corridors. And from what year can you like imagine harvesting and any, like you mentioned from seven years on, we're thinning, probably the most productive ones or ones that have taken the best root. What does a, a, they can grow 80 to 100 years, you mentioned, but from when do you start seeing, uh, say, an interesting raisin coming off a of plot normally? Great question. So in our temperate climate, the trees we plant today, we need to take care of them for about 10 years until they can be are ready to start producing resin and revenue. And after that time, the trees can be harvested for resin for their natural life, which is 80 to 100 years. So that brings up a finance question, I can imagine. You better believe it. Um, we're looking at a business cycle that's 20-year term. That's one of the delicious challenges I'm leaning into is how do we invite investors to think about time differently? In my background in finance, and typically you are looking for projects to three to five years, 10 years is a long time, and I'm looking for 20-year money. There aren't too many of them. Now, the money that's out there for 20-year term, when we look at forestry commercially, there are these financial institutions called TIMOs, Timber Investment Management Organizations, and they are used to funding forestry with a 20-year time frame. However, they want monocultures and they want large scale, like 50,000 hectare farms, and they want private property, private property, monoculture. Basically all the things you don't have. Yeah. Correct. So the TMOs that will think 20 years won't look at us. We're a niche product and we're working on community owned land, which uh, you know most investors won't invest in. We had to solve for how to invest in land where private title does not exist. That's part of our innovation. And in terms of who's stepping up, who are the investors that step up with this kind of time frame? Now, we developed a, a blended or integrated capital structure. We rely on a variety of sources of capital. We have equity, mezzanine, debt, and donations and subsidies. And we've been able to structure investments for less than 20 years, but more than 10. And so that really takes a very special kind of investor that's willing to think that long term. And I think our value proposition and the investors stepping forward, it's not just about financial reward and financial risk, but they're all valuing what's the impact? What's that some call social return on investment? The number one interest we're seeing in investors is uh, climate solutions. We see a lot of people, how do we create solutions to climate on land use? And I'd say there's a secondary interest, investors stepping up with us, our investors excited about creating solutions to wealth inequality. So how big of a difference 
does that make on wealth and inequality? If a family decides to work with you on the land they manage, they don't own, but they manage, what are you able to offer them or how big of a difference are you making to a family like that? That may comes with a hectare or with four, or I don't know what the average one is. Yeah. Okay. So we have a radical business model. And uh, if I look at the value creation, I'm going to answer your question directly in a minute. First, I'm going to give you an indirect answer. If we look at that, all the money I'm spending or we're investing in planting trees and then you get the resin out of the tree and then it gets sold to industry and industry makes a profit and then Hito Verde makes a profit and we give money to investors, right? And if you look at wealth sharing and our business model, our value creation model, most models, agricultural models, 90% of the value creation, wealth gets captured by industry and investors. 10% stays with the farmer at best. In our model, 90% of the wealth is captured by forest communities and farmers, and 10% goes to industry and investors. And I think we can still offer an attractive financial return on those terms. And the other radical innovation, people call me crazy, that we're building an asset that we don't own. Communities are building assets. So in our view, the 12,000 hectares we're planting over a 30-year period, will create a billion dollars of wealth for forest communities and farmers. If I break that down to the individual farmer and what that might look like for them, where they're living, if you have many farmers are living with a subsistence wage, they should see anywhere between a 3 to 5x increase in their income, giving them an annual income equivalent to a white-collar worker in a place like Lisbon, Madrid, or Mexico City. The numbers I'm doing today, what does that look like? Well, I mean, maybe I'll just leave it at that um, in terms of the amount of wealth creation for a family. Yeah, inflation can make it more difficult, but it's that it's significant, the difference. I think that's the... Yeah, and what I would tell you, and when we're doing this not just with one family, but maybe we're doing it with 100 or 200 families in a community, and they're all doing this, is having a catalytic effect of propelling entire communities into the middle class. So I think it's phenomenal wealth creation. And we're seeing this. Those successful in tapping now can afford to send their kids for university education. So to me, that's one of the my vision of a transformational wealth is when, when we have 1% of the population that we work with get university education. Well, that's going to change with the Hito Verde and the resin orchards we're building. How much time does it take to be, let's say, uh, four hectares, you mentioned, is, is the average is that a full-time job for a full family? Is it something you do on the side while doing other things? What's the average? Is it very difficult as well to learn to tap properly? No, no, it's not hard to learn. It does take, it's hard work in the beginning, you know, learning a new skill like that can be hard work. Over time, you get efficient. And in terms of how much money they might make from this activity, so in the Ejido Verde model, we provide all the financing required to get those plantations producing. That's our cost to us is about $5,000 US per hectare. We spend over that 10 year period, right, of initial plantation and maintenance. Most of that money is spent in the first three years. And most of that money is spent for local people to plant and tend those forests. So if that farming family wants it, they earn for planting and taking care of the trees. And then we have today, we have 1,200 people working full time equivalent under that regime where they're taking care of the trees being planted and they're earning an income equivalent to, I say, 
eight times above the minimum livable wage. We define the minimum livable wage in Mexico based on an economic institute. But the real money comes in the resin 10 years later, right, when we're tapping. So in terms of how many people that will employ, it depends on the efficiency. But we would expect that um, two hectares would be enough for a a full-time job if that's what they want. Many tappers in the world are like many farming communities. They want to have diverse sources of income. So most people tapping have other sources of income. They have cattle, they have corn. Some tappers are lawyers and doctors, and they do this as well, you know. So our model allows for people can choose if they want this to be a full-time activity. Do they want this to be a family employment activity? And we have many cases where the farmer who own, you know, has the land might be 60 years old. The kids don't live here anymore. So they're looking for hire people. So that's creating employment for their neighbors to work their parcel. I think when fully realized, Hito Verde will become one of the largest employers in Michoacan, representing about 1% of the state's employment, you know, 10,000 people. And what should smart investors, let's imagine the, the room is full of them listening to this, what should they take away from your experience until now? And obviously it's going to continue and expand and get a lot more concrete as many more parcels get to the 10 year, etc. What would you tell a group of investors that is interested in these kind of models, maybe not specifically in Mexico, as this is obviously not investment advice, but also in other places, what would be your main pointers to a group of investors if we would be, let's say, on stage talking about this? I find having worked with investors for a few decades now, I'm very point of modern portfolio, very cognizant modern portfolio theory that has most of us as a paradigm thinking 10 years maximum term investment with a very specific approach to diversifying and mitigating risk. And it's clearly a model that's worked under the old economic paradigm. We've amassed unprecedented amount of wealth with modern portfolio theory. However, a few of us, yeah. Well, that's right. The one percenters, okay, the one percenters of the world right, have um, have accrued massive wealth under this model. The 99% or 90% of us haven't necessarily benefited financially in the same way. So we often mitigate our risk. We want clear exits, three to five year term with exits. And yet every time I step back and say, well, let's look at those great companies in the world. What's a great company? I mean, we have different criteria of great globally important companies, Microsoft, Google, any of them, any of them. None of them got to their success following a three to five year timelining off promising a five year exit with outsized returns. They get to success by pursuing a long term vision and realizing that long term vision. So I think as investors, we really need to think about How do we, I think we really need to think about the time differently. And if we want to build great companies to build transformational change in the world, we can't be using the same kind of logic that got us into the hole that we're in today in terms of a climate crisis. And, you know, so I would say, one, we need need to think differently about time. We need to think differently about risk. I think the the tools we use to measure and mitigate risk need to be updated. And the analogy I would give is the following. You know, in the 1970s, people said you could never lend to poor people because they're bad credit risk. They have no assets, no guarantees. Then we have Grameen Bank in Bangladesh that innovated peer lending. And in my view, as an economist, what they innovated was how do we monetize social capital when you have a group of poor women with no assets or savings, yet that group and the promise, if one member of the group doesn't repay, the other members repay. That I call social capital. 
And by creating the social capital, and they began to prove that you can actually demonstrate very high repayment rates. I think there are, you know, high 96, 98% repayment rate of these poor, uncreditworthy lending groups. That experience then gave rise to microfinance. I think some argue impact investors got involved with microfinancing. Today, microfinancing is a robust segment of the economy. It's no longer unproven. Yet it took those early investors, philanthropists, government, and investors to really think differently about risk and return. And uh, we now have an extremely robust microfinance industry with very attractive offerings for investors. And I believe we're at a point in time with our climate emergency, we need to really be thinking differently. So I would invite any investor who's interested in the kind of thing I'm talking about, then we got to take we got to take a percent of our portfolio that we can take some outsized risks. And I am talking about outsized risks because there's no other option if we want a planet that is not worse than what we received. We have a planetary emergency. We need to think differently. Uh, we're doing it. And I would say when people say hey, it's risky, it's unproven, I would say I'm working with a family that's been successful making money with perpetual dividends for 90 years. Imagine that. Perpetual dividends for 90 years. They want no exit. This is a perpetual dividend model that can exist into perpetuity. So I'm excited about that as a new vision of wealth building. And I'm excited that we need to find investors have their needs met to participate in systemic change. And we, of course, we all need to make a profit. But we really need to be thinking differently about risk and reward. That would be one. And the final comment I would say to investors I've heard so often that we got a lot of money and there's a lack of pipeline. There's a lack of deals. Where's the investor-ready opportunity? And uh, when we're really pushing the envelope and innovation the way we're describing, and even if we're doing more conventional venture finance deals, investors need to co-create the opportunity with the entrepreneurs. We can't just look to entrepreneurs and say, where's, you know, I want that investment-ready product. Show me the papers I can sign. These deals, I'm curating deals with investors. We're building this together and I'm building multi-million dollar investment opportunities. So I would say investors, if we're really serious about regenerative finance, investors need to be co-creators. And if the individual wealth holder doesn't have the time or skills to be that active co-creator, then they need partners, financial advisors, you know, funds that can play the co-creation role. But I do not accept that I've heard for many years. I don't accept the false notion that there's a lack of investment-ready opportunities. So what if we flip the conversation? What if you would be in charge of, let's say, a billion-dollar investment fund, which can have a very, very long-term view, but it's definitely an investment fund? What would you focus on? What are the crucial bits? Could be in the sector you're in now, but could also be completely something else, regenerative aquaculture. It could be seaweeds, could be satellite monitoring, what do you, would you, if you're no longer running this company, but running this fund, what would you be selecting as your top priorities? I, I don't need to know until the dollar, like the dollar amounts exactly what you would invest in, but what would be your top X things you'd be interested in if you had a very large amount of resources? Yeah, I guess uh, boy, if I'm going to dream a little bit, you know, uh, not a very practical dream, but I would want to do it all. So I want to build an ecosystem, right? Money, I see money. We're talking about regeneration. Money is the blood in an ecosystem. It needs to flow. And if it gets, you know, I sometimes feel like the hoarding of wealth is like a blood clot in our circulatory system. So we have too much concentration of wealth or too much hoarding. It's unhealthy for the whole system. So let's get that money flowing. And I think that I would have some business development money, some grant money for business development. 
promising early opportunities, but that aren't quite ready, but need some technical assistance or investment readiness monies. I would then have another layer of what I would call, you know, seed stage round. I'd love to see a round of seed stage funding, early stage companies taking you know, the stuff I'm, I'm, my friends and what I'm talking about. I'm talking about kelp. Kale. Yeah. Kelp. It's a, a revolution beginning in Alaska with uh, EAC. It's unbelievable. It's a multi-billion dollar market opportunity that's going to be part of our future. The source of protein. I think it sequesters carbon, I don't know, 10 times more than terrestrial forests. So I see market opportunity. It's good for health, good for ocean health, and great economic opportunity. Very early. It's an industry in its infancy that's going to scale. And I, I use that as an analogy. Grant money on development, maybe some venture funding for some early, you know, smaller companies. And then there might be some more larger investments for growth scale. Maybe I might argue in Hito Verdes at that level. And then, you know, if you got so much money, then you might look for some more mature business opportunities in terms of what kinds of sectors that excite me. You know, I think the whole issue of soil and nutrients, and that's going to be a business, both in terms of a, how do we make soils healthy? There's a big business that's not well developed there, monetizing carbon that accelerate this transformation to, you know, toward a regenerative, sustainable future. I think there's opportunities in there, but complicated. And in terms of things, I think if we look with uh, the circular system, a friend of mine has an amazing company where this would be a great example of the new kinds of companies we need. He's making fabric for textiles and he's sourcing from um, agricultural waste. So he's turning agricultural waste into commercial grade fabrics for clothing and manufacturing. And he's also repurposing garments for that fabric. So that to me is a very interesting kind of model. And if you want to look at where are those I would be looking where are industries fragmented, where there's fragmentation in the industry, where there's an innovation that offers to be the first or second in its group, you know, a growth opportunity. I'm involved with a fund. We just invest in a company that's doing um, EV uh, recharging stations, you know, just that. So just in terms of our move to electric cars and the network of charging stations that we need. Well, we just funded a, a reinventure capital, put money into a company doing that. I think that's another example of the kinds of things we could be doing with a billion dollars. In my heart of hearts, where I would really want to push the envelope is we need to find a way for capital markets to be more inclusive of indigenous people worldwide. And capitalist system has largely failed indigenous people. And I think we're in a new day where there's new models, new ways to think about business and finance that are really reinvigorating traditional cultures tapping their traditional knowledge to create the solutions we need as we move into this next century in a way that honors the past and creates the you know dynamic solutions for the future that might sound like a little of a polemic but um i'll just give you an example uh, we're working to adapt the adaptation of traditional knowledge that's working with scientists we are taking pine resin and we believe we have a product that can substitute glyphosates right glyphosate you probably know you're our listeners know is uh, one of the most... We had Seg Bush on the call, yeah. <laughs> it's the most widely used pesticide in the world. I think it's used on 80% of the world's food. And uh, the environmentalists among us are really unhappy with the uh, toxic effects of... Uh, the healthcare workers as well, yeah. And the healthcare workers. So what is 80% of the world's food relies on this product? What are we going to do to eliminate the need or substitute it? I'm very excited about a product we're working on that's a, a bio-based uh, substitute for glyphosates. And that was informed by traditional knowledge and science. And I, that would be an early stage company. It's an Australian company that I would take a look at investing in. So I hope that might give a flavor of the kinds of opportunities I would be excited about 
with a billion dollars. I think it's uh, it gives a very good flavor of that. And I want to be conscious of your time. And thank you so much. I think it's also a good ending to, I don't think the last time we talk, because there's so much more to unpack in this model and the rest of your work. But I think we leave it at that for now. And thank you so much for joining us and obviously for the great work you're doing. Thank you. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.